Dr. Gary G. Cohen, one of America's best-known prophecy speakers, is delivering five messages from the book of Isaiah under the general caption, The Future of the Middle East. In the King is Coming Auditorium at Colton, California, Dr. Cohen is now beginning to speak from Isaiah 52 and 53 on the subject, The Prophecy of the Coming of the Suffering Servant. We're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 53, and we'll begin with prayer. Our Heavenly Father how we thank thee for this wonderful, beautiful passage that tells us of the greater beauty of your holiness and our Lord's sacrifice for us. Now, Lord, might thy Holy Spirit fill each of us that we might enter in into this holy place and see afresh our Lord and thy plans from the very beginning. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. My bar mitzvah piece when I was 1947 went that was Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Because in the Hebrew readings, they would often skip Isaiah 53, alleging that uh, it was influential uh, toward Christianity. And so this would have been my bar mitzvah piece, or when I was at bar mitzvah, but it was omitted and I got Isaiah 54, which is also very beautiful. But we know that this predicts the coming of Christ and his death on the cross and his atoning work in Luke chapter 24, in verse 25, the Lord says, says, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 44, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Our Lord said, The things concerning him were written in the prophets. At other times, he's, the Lord said that it was necessary for the Christ to die and then to rise again, and that was written in the scriptures. And this prophecy talks about his death and his resurrection. Some have alleged, and people allege things sometimes where there's no proof at all and all the evidence is against them, but not all people know all things. But some have read this and they said it can't be part of the Old Testament 
it must have been written afterwards and slipped into the Old Testament by scheming Christians who made up prophecies. See, they pretended. In other words, it's a legitimate story. How do we know that this chapter wasn't written by scoundrels who slipped it into Isaiah and then said, look, it was prophesied. And some people actually say that. Of course, in 1949, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, one whole manuscript of Isaiah that was written about 200 years before Christ was discovered. So there and there it was, Isaiah 53. Now, in the ancient world, they did not number the chapters. They did have paragraph and chapter-like separations. They had uh, the Hebrew letter P. It didn't stand for paragraph, but it stood for open or such. And it had certain marks and sections. But they didn't have the numbers, so it wasn't that you looked up Isaiah 53, but you just read on the roll so you, as you made the scroll, and you found it. But there it was among the Dead Sea Scrolls, hidden from 69 A.D. to 1949, but it was written 200 years before Christ. So there's no one on the globe that can really maintain that this was written after Christ. But we have more evidence than that in the Septuagint. The Septuagint, which means in Greek, septa, seven, gent work, the, the 70 work, the Septuagint was a translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, Old Testament is written in Hebrew, into Greek in Egypt around the year 270 before Christ. And we have all kinds of copies of the Septuagint. And we have copies from all parts of the world. So it's not a case where you can just slip in Isaiah 53 in one copy and you've done it. In order to do it successfully, you would have had to centuries ago go all around the world and find all these manuscripts and slip it in. And it wasn't done because they match. But we have copies of this translated into Greek from 270 B.C., before Christ. That's third century before Christ. It was translated into Greek, showing it existed. So you see, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the evidence was conclusive and clear. This was in the book of Isaiah. And historically, we can date the book of Isaiah rather well. There are many historical references. In fact, there are probably about a thousand of them in the book, without exaggerating. And, uh, and uh, it was written 700, very close to 700 before Christ. Some of the book of Isaiah was written uh, uh, maybe up to uh, 730, 750, down to maybe 690, 680. So 700 before Christ is our date for the book of Isaiah. That is when it passed. Now we look into this wonderful prophecy and we look and we can kind of imagine ourselves almost as rabbis or studying the scripture some seven centuries before the Lord. The telling of the coming of the Messiah and it actually starts in chapter 52 verse 13. 
And in the King James, they divided it up into three verse sections. There are five sections. The first section is 52, 13 through 15. It's the Messiah's coming. It's like an overture in the opera that in sparkling music, just in a capsule, describes his coming and work. And then it'll break into detail, describing various aspects. But the whole overview of the chapter is here in the overture, Messiah's Coming, part one, 52, 13 to 15. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So we see the, we're told to look. Behold means look. In Hebrew, hine, look, gaze at, stare at, my servant. The Messiah, when he comes, will be God's servant. He shall deal prudently. Well, we know uh, he'll be wise. So he won't be some cult leader that does insane or odd things. He won't be weird. He'll be sensible and prudent. The servant of God, when he comes, will be sensible. All of God's plans are sensible. The Christ will be sensible. And any claimant to be a Messiah, and the Hebrew word, I'll talk more about this tomorrow. Messiah in Greek, it's Christ, Christos. Same word, Messiah, Christ. He'll be prudent. He'll be wise. He'll not only be wise, he'll be God's servant wise, he'll be exalted and extolled and very high. Three times it says it uses synonyms. It's going to be lifted up. That means when the Messiah comes, he's not going to be, so to speak, at the end hidden. People said, well, maybe the Messiah has been somebody we didn't even think of. No. It's going to be lifted up. I think... A fair representation of that verse is, if you're looking for the savior of the world, he has to be one of the world-famous personalities. It's going to be extolled, lifted up very high. Who dreamed of, of course, at that time, that he'd not only be lifted up in glory, but he'd be lifted up literally and physically on the cross. But he'll be very high. I was told when I became a Christian... And I didn't know all that much as a Christian. I, in fact, some, the Jewish people in Israel generally know a great deal about the Old Testament. They, they're taught it in school. See, they haven't had a big constitutional case or something. They're taught it in school. On TV, every day the scriptures are read. So they're being confronted with this, ready for the second coming of the Lord to recognize him. But in America, many Jewish people don't know that much, and I did not know that much. I hardly knew who Moses or Abraham was. And, uh, but anyway, when I became a Christian, I, I knew something, and I remember this one fellow who studied to be a rabbi in Poland. He would say, Gary, we have had many messiahs, Shopsitzvi, and uh, Akiba, and uh, was suggested, Rabbi Akiba, uh, some thought he. Some have said Hezekiah might have been the Messiah. And uh, 
Bar Kokhba came. Bar Kokhba came in 130 and said he was the Messiah and that God gave him the power to get rid of the Romans. Well, the Roman legions came and by two years they had destroyed Jerusalem and Bar Kokhba and in the end, Bar Kokhba stabbed Rabbi Akiba and uh, couldn't be the Messiah. But he was accepted as the Messiah for a while. A.D. 130-132. But you know, in God's providence, when we read the words of Jesus that fulfill the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse, every word is marvelous. Every word has the badge of authenticity and holiness from God. Compare the wonderful sayings and Jesus, and again, I've read the Talmud. Jesus is not like another rabbi. None of the rabbis sounded like Jesus, but that's another day and another subject. They are in legalism and arguing how many grains of flour you can put on a, put on a spoon on the Sabbath and, when you, and how many chews you can make on the Sabbath when you put the fork, the utensil down and how much you can put in a bowl on the Sabbath and how many steps and when you go to the temple do you take the left foot first and the right foot first and all of these false messiahs haven't given us one good saying like a stitch in time saves nine or a penny saved is a penny earned you see in other words God has made it simple it's not that we have you know like some of these uh, contests where everybody is almost the same and you have to pick all of the messiahs of Israel put together give us hardly one good proverb. You know that? There, there are no candidates. And with Christ, it's chapter after chapter after chapter of wonderful perfection and holiness. In other words, it's either Christ or no one. It's not like there are a lot of good candidates. So he will deal prudently and he'll be lifted up but verse 14 starts like a new movement, a new theme in the overture. Verse 13 speaks of his success and exaltation. Verse 14 speaks of his suffering. As many were astonished at thee, his face, visage in King James means face. His face was so marred more than that of any man and his form more than that of the sons of men. The rabbis used to look at that verse and wonder what it meant. How would it be that when the Messiah came? Now we don't know what Jesus looks like. We really don't. And there's something written in the second century that says he had blonde hair. But you know that was uh, late second century uh, not part of the Bible, uh, I don't think so. We don't know what he looked like. But born without sin, he probably looked like a perfect type of man. But remember, Mary took him for the gardener. So I don't think he had, you know, a visible halo on his head or anything like that. But uh, his face was marred. What well, we understand at the cross. At the cross, he didn't have sleep for two nights. They put thorns on his brow and cut him and slit him so that there'd be blood all over. It says they buffeted him. 
They said, if you're the Son of God, tell me who hit you. And they, they probably punched him right in the face. So our Savior, when he was on the cross, physically, did not look beautiful in the sense of handsome. He looked beautiful in the sense of sacrifice. So it says his face would be marred. He would suffer. But in verse 15, his holy work, so shall he sprinkle many nations as the high priest would sprinkle people to cleanse them from defilement. Christ would sprinkle them. Nations! The Savior would save and cleanse. Sprinkling speaks of cleansing. He would cleanse nations and kings will shut their mouths at him. Everybody, the idea is everyone is silent before a king. But he is the king of kings. So kings will shut their mouths in his presence. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. In other words, the tidings of his cleansing work, that they didn't see it with their own eyes and they didn't hear it with their own ears, but yet the tidings, the gospel, will be told to rulers and people around the world. And that has, is what has literally happened. The gospel has gone forth to rulers and people throughout the world. So that's the overture, part one, the Messiah's coming in chapter 52. Part two is the first three verses in chapter 53. Messiah's rejection. Verses one, two, and three in Isaiah 53. Now we focus on his rejection which is hard to believe because there were passages in other parts of the Bible that shows he will rule the world. And again, as we said last night, the secret was his two comings. The first coming rejected by the world. And he starts out with the question, who hath believed our report? Well, isn't that what we say? Who hath believed the gospel? That's what our report is. Our message, gospel, of course, is old, old English from the old German, Gospel, good news. Who has believed the message? The shocking thing is the gospel is free and everybody doesn't believe it. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's interesting that when the Bible speaks of salvation, it speaks of, with mine own right arm, I have saved them. But when it speaks of creation, it says, look at the heavens, the works of my fingers. The crafting work that God has crafted in the heavens. But it says it took his strength to save humanity. The moral struggle was greater than the creation struggle. In fact, that's why I believe the Sabbath is on Sunday. That the Sabbath marked God's rest from creation from the beginning up until the cross and resurrection. And from that time on, the rest day, the day the apostles met, marks God's rest from his redemptive work from there on. The rest from the redemption. And the arm of the Lord is revealed because of the holiness of it, the struggle of how God could remain holy and yet save us. The difficulty of it all. 
And you notice in Isaiah 6, the angels don't say, and, and the seraphim don't shout, the, cherub, the cherubim rather, do not shout, smart, smart, smart is God. Or in Revelation 4 and 5. They could. They could. Or strong, strong, strong is God. No, the predominant characteristic is his holiness. He is the great physicist, the great geneticist. But in the struggle today, he wants to be known primarily to us as the Holy One. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, we see it because the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes. But other people are blind to the strength of the Lord. They are blind to the struggle the Lord went through. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Remember the root out of dry ground? Israel seemed to be a waste. Rebellion and sin. Twenty kings in the north. Twenty kings in the south. Evil kings. And Ahab did more evil than all the kings before him in the north. And Ahaz, living now at the time of Isaiah, did more sin than all the kings before him in the south. And people said, well, what good can come out of Israel? It was a curse for a Roman to be sent to Israel. And what good can come out of Galilee? And he said, come and see. A root out of dry ground. He grew up of a, out of a country, out of a land that seemed to be dried up and worthless. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's saying in his rejection, physically, uh, they, they didn't see the beauty. Please turn the cassette over to hear the remainder of Dr. Cohn's third message from the book of Isaiah titled, The Prophecy of the Coming of the Suffering Servant. Years ago, I saw a picture about Jim Thorpe. Uh, Burt Lancaster, if I remember, played Jim Thorpe years and years ago. I saw this as a kid, or whatever it was. And I remember when his wife left him, one woman in the audience screamed out loud in the theater, Oh, how could she do it? Still remember. Of course, the secret was, Jim Thorpe wasn't really Burt Lancaster. And Burt Lancaster was always polite and dignified and handsome. And uh, the woman was really asking when she screamed, how could she do it? She was really screaming, how could she leave Burt Lancaster? But how did the Lord, the Lord's beauty is in his character. The superficial beauty of people can fade. It can be elusive. But for beauty alone, I don't know. Uh, the Lord, uh, I don't want to say anything that I'll be sorry for. You know, do, does the Lord look like Charlton Heston? We don't see a hint, though sinners like to imagine it. 
We don't see a hint of any, uh, anybody in love with him in a personal type of way as if in a boy-girl, man-wife uh, type relationship. Uh, I'm sure he'll be beautiful. He'll be beautiful because we love him. But uh, the type of beauty, some men are beautiful in face in other ways. Will he look like Charlton Heston or the handsome kind of person? At least at the cross, at his rejection, he physically did not look beautiful. And that's part of the humiliation too. You see, the humiliation of Christ, he had no form nor comeliness, wasn't just Philippians 2 that God became a man or God, it says, became a servant, but he also shared our position, our lot in life. He not only was a man, but he wasn't Superman. Going zzz every time you're hungry or magic person, you know, you touch this and you get food. Wouldn't do that when he was hungry. He said, well, pray to God. We wait for God to answer. He would never use a miracle to solve his own problem. He could have taken Pilate and gone zzz and had an electric shock hit Pilate, a lightning bolt and killed him on the spot. He wanted to convince them he was Christ by the testimony, not by tricks. He did miracles for others. He was like us. His body got tired. When they punched him, it hurt. His skin broke. He shared our position in life. And so there's no... So when he suffered, there was no beauty that day in an outward sense that people would say, my, isn't he handsome? He must be the Christ. And verse 3 hits the crescendo. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. To despise is to mentally think low of someone. If you despise someone, mankind on that time despised him. They thought low of him. The outworking of despising in the heart and in the brain is rejection. They said no to him. No to him. And he was crucified. And the crowd yelled, crucify him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. See, we didn't think anything of him. The rejection of Christ and how it must have hurt. You know, I, as a young Jewish boy, lived in an awful neighborhood in Philadelphia and sometimes I was surrounded by kids and beat up and when one kid was done fighting with me, the next kid would line up. And I would be just fighting until sometimes with five, six, eight fellows, one after another. Not that I wanted, I tried to get away. They'd surround me and just do it for fun. And I wouldn't walk away till I was lying on the ground and they'd leave me. Some of my earliest prayers that was that God would kill some of these people. Awful prayers. Awful prayers. But you know, I, I thought they were horrible people. But the hurt as a child to go through that day after day after day as a child, the hurt was unending.
But yet, how much worse is the hurt if you go to people because you love them and you want to bear their sins and you want to pick them up and the very ones who you love and have come to save curse you and spit on you and push you around and despise you and reject you and esteem you not. The things that were said hurt more than the fist. The mocking hurts more than the stripes. And Jesus heard it all. He went through it. Made fun of by those who arrested him. Betrayed by Judas. Made fun of by the high priest's father-in-law. Humiliated in front of the high priest. Humiliated in front of the Sanhedrin. Humiliated in front of Pilate. Humiliated in front of Herod Agrippa. Humiliated again in front of Pilate. Humiliated by the soldiers and in the beatings. Then humiliated by the great crowd who chose the worst Barabbas and then finally humiliated afresh at the cross. My, despised and rejected. Thirdly, Messiah's substitution. The substitutionary atonement, verses 4 to 6. Here, the prophet breaks into theology, teaches us theology. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see the substitution. Our griefs, our sorrows were put on his shoulders. He carried them. We did esteem him stricken of God, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. We sin. The word transgression means to walk across the line, to trespass, to walk across. And he did, we did it. We walked across the line. We broke God's commandments, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It's saying the same thing in a parallel. Our sins, our wickedness, our iniquities, he was bruised for. God is saying over and over again, the substitutionary atonement. The punishment, chastisement of our peace was upon him. In order that we should have peace, he took the beating. With his stripes, we are healed. Notice, over and over again, theology is so clear. Christ died for our sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. That tells us the universality of sin taught in the Old Testament. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here is my sin, and God hath put on Christ my sin and my burden, so I am free. The substitutionary atonement. And notice who did it. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was God's plan of salvation from the beginning. As Newell said, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. The substitutionary atonement 
is clearly taught in the Bible unmistakably. Do you know that in 1924, in the modernist fundamentalist controversy, 1,200 ministers in just one large denomination alone signed a paper called the Auburn Affirmation that said you could be a minister in their denomination without believing in the substitutionary atonement. Absolutely true, called the Auburn Affirmation of Liberty. 1,200 clergymen in one denomination signed a paper, you didn't have to believe in the substitutionary atonement. Well, you don't need a whole Bible, the whole New Testament's filled with it, but this verse alone, there is no other way it is crystal clear to reject it is to reject God's clear plan. Then, part four, the suffering. The suffering. Verses seven through nine. The suffering. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Remember, he said, no man taketh my life from me. Some of these motion pictures make a human Christ. Recently we saw a, a, a motion picture that had a Christ that did miracles, but yet a Christ who was trapped into the cross. Things didn't go right. And he was kind of trapped into the cross. There's a book called The Passover Plot by a guy named Schoenfeld. I wrote a 36-page uh, analysis of that. He doesn't even want to say that. He said uh, it was all a big plot, and he makes up uh, with no proof in the whole world, just a made-up story. He's, he doesn't believe in the gospel, and he just made up uh, all kinds of people that were involved, and they were going to crucify him, get him down from the cross quickly. But he said something went wrong. A soldier who didn't know about it, that they didn't bribe, stabbed him in the side, so things went wrong. No. No. He opened not his mouth because he was God's lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The lamb sacrifice did not fight. He was the lamb. He opened not his mouth like other people. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He won't speak before Herod Agrippa. Remember that? And then the second time, he wouldn't speak in front of Pilate. And Pilate said, Pilate just thought he was some common guy that, uh, you know, didn't want to... Pilate said, aren't you going to answer me? Pilate said, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? Huh, you're not going to answer me when I ask you a question? I've got the power of life and death over you. And Jesus said, but it was given to you. So you have a responsibility to the one who gave it to you. See, the idea that he would open not his mouth, well, first he was silent for a while in front of Pilate. He was silent in front of Herod. The idea is he would not try to argue himself out of the cross. I have no doubt about it. Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. Look at his brilliant answers in every tough situation. He's brilliant, but always courteous. He doesn't go to wild extremes like humans. He's always holy. He's never cheap 
or frivolous. He's pleasant, but not frivolous. He corrects error, but he doesn't hurt the people. He doesn't have any money, but he talks to the poor young ruler, and he says, follow me. Give away your money and follow me. When everybody else drivels at the rich, he says to the rich man, you follow me. I have something better than you. Perfect. He opened not his mouth, meant if Jesus wanted to play lawyer, he could have said, well, wait a minute, Pilate. Here's 11 reasons why the high priest is manipulating you and you don't want to do this. And he could have argued and Pilate would have said, boy, you're right. We need more people like you. I'm going to use you and my staff. And he'd have been free. Or he said, quiet to the crowd with Barabbas. He could have given a lecture to the crowd that would have beaten Shakespeare's Mark Antony. No, the evidence was in that he was the savior. The healings of the blind, the raising of the dead, the touching of the cripples, the perfect teaching about God and his holiness. The evidence was in accept him or reject him. No tricks at the last minute and no manipulative lawyer's argument. He was silent. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation remarkable? He was put with the prisoners. He was cut off out of the land of the living. That means he's killed. Cut off from the living people. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah says he'll be killed. Why? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. Remember, they buried him quickly. The Sabbath was coming. They said, let's get rid of his body. And so they took the two wicked people off the cross, the malefactors, the criminals, and they buried the three of them. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Notice his perfection, sinless perfection. He neither did any violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't say anything wrong. Some people are not violent criminals, but they manipulate and they talk and they perjure, and they're criminals, mental criminals, talking criminals. Some people don't talk much. They're violent. It says he didn't do any violence, no deceit in his mouth. He never sinned in either way. He was the son of God. Finally, the last section his resurrection, verses 10 through 12. The last, the fifth section, his resurrection. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How could it please God to hurt him? God loves just and good people. God loves those who trust in him. God wants to save his people. God lets judgment fall only on evil people. How could it please God to bruise the perfect one? He hath put him to grief. God put him to grief. No, it wasn't the Jews. I remember they said, you killed Christ when they didn't even believe in Christ and I didn't even know who Christ was. And they said, you killed Christ. Yes, the Romans put him to death, and the Jewish high priest said, he's the lamb. And the crowd assented. They all had their hand in it, yes. 
But ultimately, he said, no man take my life from me, and God sent him to die. God gave him the grief. Why? It says, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. The eternal, infinite Son of God was paying for our sins. That's why God put him to grief. But then suddenly, at the end of the story, the music suddenly changes. And if we could hear kettle drums and whatever, trumpets would sound, it breaks into the resurrection. Suddenly, after saying grief and transgressions upon him, cut off out of the land of the living, his grave, he died, prison, death upon him, suddenly it breaks into a new song. He shall see his seed. Suddenly he can see those that carry the faith after him, his seed. He sees it. He shall prolong his days. He's dead, but he prolongs his days. You see, that's the resurrection. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The killing him did not end the story. He shall see of the travail of his soul. He'll see it. He sees it now at the right hand of God, the resurrection. And be satisfied. For he shall bear their iniquities. Now because he did that, Verse 12, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. You see, Jesus deserves to be the king of kings because he was born that way, but he also won the laurels in battle. He suffered more for God under more pressure than anyone else. He suffered more than us all. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. My, my. I just say this as we end. When I first went in the army, I suffered. I went in as a private. Now, I've been in the reserves 26 years, and I don't suffer much anymore in the army because I'm much higher rank. But I started as a private. My, my mother thought that little boys shouldn't do any work. I had never washed a cup or dish at all. I had never sewn anything. I'd never rinsed out a plate. My mother wouldn't let me dry a plate. She caught me, she said, go away. I hadn't done hardly any work in my life. And when I became a Christian, I was ordered out of the house by my father, who again 20 years later was coming to church. And I'll tell you, when I was put in the kitchen on KP to wash pots for 200 men, a guy who had never dipped his hand in soapy water, I tell you, I suffered more than others because I had never done it. And our Lord to come and be cursed and to suffer because of whom he was, it was more painful. So we must say tonight, what a wonderful Savior, what a wonderful plan of salvation, written 700 years in advance, inescapably it fits Christ, and to deny him means to deny all logic and all evidence and all love. Dr. Gary G. Cohen has completed the third of five messages about Israel from the book of Isaiah. 
To hear Dr. Cohn's next lecture in this series, please listen to the next cassette.